All right, uh, go ahead and grab a seat. It is uh, good to be with you today. My name is Caleb. For those of you that I have not met, um, every December we do something called Live to Give, which is just a, a focus on what does it look like to take the words of Jesus seriously, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. So before the sermon every uh, Sunday, I just want to kind of highlight a couple things. Last, uh, last week we talked about serving and how if we take seriously Jesus' Jesus's words, that uh, it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive, then part of what that looks like is to use our lives to, to serve others, to, to help others, to use our life to serve and be blessed in that way. And today I just want to mention uh, briefly that uh, one of the other ways that you can do that is by financially partnering with the church. So this is our website. If you go to truelifedenver.com, on the bottom is a give link, and you can uh, click there. And then there's opportunity to either give online, which um, in our day and age is obviously what most people do. You can set up recurring giving. You can give uh, with ACH. You can give credit cards and rack up you know, points for Jesus. And... Um, and uh, seriously, uh, or, or you can mail a, you can mail a check. However, however it is that you want to do that. And and I just want to say something uh, about this is that when when you look if you if you're new now I know you're like okay this is why I don't go to church because they're always talking about money. Well we do in December so don't come in December but every other month you you'll be fine. Um, but uh, if you're new or you know you're not a Christian we don't want you to give anything really. I mean the, the reason that we want you if if this is your church and you call True Life your home uh, we want you to give to be able to contribute to. To what we're doing here, to be able to contribute to what it is that we are trying to build here and what we are trying to do in the city. When you, when you give to True Life, you give to all the different things that, that we are a part of. You give to all the different ministries and all the different ministry that takes place happening here. We give thousands of dollars to church planting across the world in Japan and Europe and in uh, Colorado. We give, uh, we, we, I mean, your money goes to the counseling that happens here at True Life. Your money goes to the community that we are working to create here at True Life. So again, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time talking about that because uh, I'm actually going to pre preach a whole sermon on it. But um, but if you're if you're new, we really we don't want you to give. But if you call True Life your church, we want you to be able to participate uh, financially in what God is doing here. And and look, just to take seriously that Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. What would happen if we really took those? Uh, took those words to heart. And then last thing I, I want to say that is a little disconnected from the sermon and, and really even kind of disconnected from this, but it just goes to what we are uh, trying to do here. And I know some of you don't know about this and, and you're new, uh, but recently we did have a, a gal in our church, a woman in our church that, that was uh, struck by a drunk driver um, and passed away a couple weeks ago. And I know many of you know this and it's been a tragedy in our church. I was in Jacksonville yesterday uh, doing the memorial service for that, and the only reason I bring that up is because just yesterday being there, I look, if you're new especially, I, I want to say to you that we want community for you really badly. I know Adam mentioned that in the announcements, but we want you to experience community, and to be there yesterday was just a reminder to me of how important that is that we want you to actually be a part of a community that cares about you when life is hard, when life is joyful, to actually be a part of a community of people that really love you. That, that is what we want for you. That's why this church exists. Um, so if I can just share that from, from my heart, even uh, from uh, fresh uh, things that have happened in our church, that is really what our desire for you is. Okay, so uh, let me pray and then we will jump into our sermon together um, as we talk about Advent and what God has given to us. 
Father, would you uh, even now just open our hearts to receive your word? Uh, Would you open our hearts to receive what it is that you want to speak to us today? And I pray that where we need to be comforted, you would comfort us. Where we need to be convicted, that you would convict us. Where we need to be led, Holy Spirit, in the life that you have for us, that, that you would do that. And so I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, during the Christmas season, uh, one of the things that uh, you notice, and I, we talked about this last week, is that there's kind of this Christmas spirit, right? People are very generous. That uh, I was sitting on the airplane yesterday, and, and the woman behind me was buying drinks for people, and then the flight attendant actually just gave them their drinks for free instead, and it was only the row behind me, uh, which was disappointing. But um, it's like, let the Christmas spirit keep flowing through the plane. Don't stop it in the back row. Um, but people are just generous, right? I mean, they, I heard them from my row next to a screaming child. I, I heard them cheersing, you know, and they said, you know, oh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. And, and during the Christmas season, there is this spirit of generosity. Uh, but one of the things that we also can kind of feel during this time is that there's also a spirit of materialism, that there's something that you begin to notice that none of us like, right? It's, it's kind of both of these dualities that are um, kind of bounce up against each other during the Christmas season. We see sometimes the best of humanity and the worst at the same time. A couple of years ago, there was a woman in the UK um, that made uh, the news because uh, she bought all of these presents for her uh, children. And it's something I guess she kind of does every year. This is a side-by-side from one year to the next year. And you look at that, and uh, it, it kind of it, it messes with you a little bit, right? Even if you sort of go, hey, it's her kids, it's her money, she wants to do what she wants to do, let her do it. Even if you sort of can justify it, there's still something about that that just kind of irks us a little bit, right? That you see and go, there's something not right with that. And, and that is one of the things that we begin to see and feel during the Christmas season is, yes, the spirit of generosity, but also there's this spirit of materialism that we begin to see. And nobody likes materialism, right? Nobody likes that. That's one of the things that most people in our society can agree, can agree on. There's something wrong with this. There's something wrong about just consumption and, and just building our kingdoms and adding more and more and more. There's something that we know is, is sick about that. And yet most of us don't think of ourselves in that way, right? We think the problem is there in the UK. We think the problem is in this woman's house. We think the problem is is this, but we don't necessarily view it as in us. We know that materialism is an issue, but we don't necessarily think that it's an issue in ourselves. But we can easily miss that. We can easily be blind to the forces at work within our own heart and that are present driving so much of what we do. Let let me just kind of peel back the layers a little bit to maybe begin to help us understand how this spirit, even if not this extravagant, may actually be at work in our own hearts. Uh, This is from a book called The Narcissism Epidemic, which um, is a little bit dated now, but the research still stands. And this is by some sociologists. And here's what they said. In 1976, 16% of American high school seniors said that having a lot of money was extremely important. 16%. This ballooned to 26% in 2006. So some of you were in high school during that time. High school students named getting a good-paying job as more important than being ethical and honorable. You see, some of the materialistic spirit that is at work saying, I want a good-paying job. That's more important to me than 
ethics and honor. Uh, in, in those 18 to 25-year-olds asked about the most important goals of their generation. This is uh, during the 2006 period. 81% named becoming rich. More important than, more than twice as many as named helping people who need help. Four times more than named becoming a leader in the community. And eight times as many as named becoming more spiritual. They said, here's what really matters. So when you, some of you, when you were in high school, and even if, even if this is, uh, you know, you were older than that, this is still the, the spirit of the age in many ways. Here's what really matters. Wealth. Now, even to go further, here's our consumer debt 2017-2018. Consumer debt rose 7.6 this past year to almost $4 trillion. Think about that. How much money that we spend on things that we cannot actually afford. That's the definition of materialism. It says there's things that I want, I don't have the money for it, but it doesn't matter. I want them anyway. It continues to rise taller than this man, however tall he is. Um, I don't know why that's there. It's kind of funny, but... um, well, think about this. This is research done uh, amongst Christians, okay? July 2016, the importance of generosity to me by generation. And I won't go through each generation's thing. It's, it's pretty close, but around 25%, millennials 34% say that generosity is extremely important to me. So if you were asked, hey, is generosity important to you? Most people are going to say it's very or extremely important to me. Now, when asked, okay, but how generous are you actually? And if you're, here's how, they, here's how the researchers asked this question, the next question. If your friends, if your friends were to see everything that you give, how generous would they say that you are? And here's, people begin to be a little bit more honest. It changes. How generous am I with my money? Now, I'm not saying there's a giant drop-off, but you see that people, when they begin to honestly assess a little bit more, through the eyes of others, they say, it's so important to me. And then go, okay, but let's look a little bit deeper. And they go, oh, okay, maybe not. Maybe not that much. And this is probably the most interesting to me, the ultimate financial goal for life. The ultimate financial goal for life. What do people say? Provide for my family, 22% of Christians say, is the most important financial goal for life. Support the lifestyle I want, 15%. Meet my obligations and needs, 13%. Be content, 13%. Give charitably, 11%. Serve God, coming in at number six, 10%. Think about that. People say materialism's an issue. Man, piling up Christmas presents around the tree, that's, that's awful. Generosity is very important to me, but you know what's actually more important? Providing for my family, supporting the lifestyle I desire, meeting my obligations, being content giving charitably, serving God, comes in at number six. We've got to see that something is wrong with that for those of us that would call ourselves Christians. See, nobody, nobody, nobody wants to think materialism is a problem, but if we are honest, it can be hard to see, and yet it is present. It is present in us, which is also why, look, we're just anxious a lot of times about money. Aren't you anxious often about money and your financial condition? Sometimes we may feel guilty about the way that we use our money, but, but we can't deny that money has power in our lives. That if we could be free from, 
That if we could be free from the power of money, if we could be free from any sort of materialistic bent or drive in us, if we could be free from that, that our lives would experience a deeper sense of generosity. So here's our question is just what can free us? What can free us from the hold that money so often has on us? What can free us from the forces of materialism that are often at work in our own lives, not just out there? What can free us from this? And, and we looked last week at a uh, passage in the Bible. We're looking at, over the next few weeks, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, which are two of the chapters in the Bible that talk the most about generosity and, and what it looks like. And so we're going to look at one of the next sections in here in chapter 9, and we'll explore what Paul says has the power to begin to change us from the grip that money can have on us. Here's what he says, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 8. Now, concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you. And he's talking about a financial uh, donation that he is asking the church in Corinth to give to the church in Jerusalem. Okay, this is what this is about. For I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians, another church. Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them saying, look, you, you were passionate, you were zealous about giving to the church in Jerusalem, and the church in Macedonia was like, whoa, that's awesome that you would, that you would uh, do that, and it stirred them up to want to give. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty, and so that you would be ready just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I consider it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. He's trying to get them ready to give what they said they were going to give. He doesn't want to show up and, and force them to do something, but he is encouraging them to fulfill the obligation that they wanted to be a part of. The point is this, the person who sows, this is a farming analogy, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. If we want to be free from the powers of materialism at work in our own hearts, what do we need to understand? Here's the, the first thing is, why is generosity so difficult often for us? Now, Paul doesn't explain why generosity is difficult, but he implies that it is. He implies it is because he is saying to them, look, I, I asked you and you wanted to be a part of this and you were passionate about doing this. And yet he says he knows that there's some things in them that they might not be ready to give now. And that theoretically, he says, the Macedonians might come and, and be ready to receive this gift and you don't want to give anymore. And Paul acknowledges what we know, that giving can be very challenging, that giving can be very difficult, and that it's a heart issue, he says. He says, giving comes from our heart, and thus if we do not give, or we struggle to give, or we struggle with materialism, or we say, I'm very generous, and then we actually say, but here's my priorities, God comes in at number six. He says, if that is what's happening, that comes from our hearts, comes from our hearts, and here's why. It's hard because money is a tool. 
Money is a tool, right? Money is a tool that gets us the things that we enjoy. Money is a tool that gets us the things that we want. And we don't want to miss out on the things that we want, whatever those might be. We don't want to miss out on this. And money is the thing that brings us over there. And generosity or giving up our money would mean that there's a trade-off. If we're to be generous with our money and give it away so that we no longer have it, that means that we no longer can get the things over here that we desire, that we want. And we don't want to miss out on those things. We think of money and we think of generosity as a trade-off. If I give away this money, that means I've lost the tool to allow me to get this. And that can be different things for everybody, right? I mean, there's different things. And we talked about this last week where some people are more spending people and some people are more saving people. So for you, you might say the trade-off for me is my, my 401k. Maybe you live very meagerly here. But you're, you, the trade-off for you is if I were to give money, then what I lose out on is a stable, financially secure future that I'm trying to build for myself. It could be all sorts of things. It could be right here, right now. So maybe it's not the future, it's right now. It's if I use money to be generous, if I give it away, I've lost the tool here to be able to do the things I want to purchase here. So let's explore a little bit of what maybe this could be for us. I know some of you won't be able to see this, but, but this is how the average American spends their money. Biggest cost over here is housing. Biggest cost is housing that we spend 26.4%. In Denver, that's probably about 93% that we spend on housing. Um, uh, food away from home, 4.5%. Apparel, 2.4%. Transportation, another big category, 12.6%. Entertainment, 4%. As you can see, the smallest category, and this maybe tells you something about our society, is education and then cash contributions, which would be financial generosity. So the smallest things we spend money on is our education and giving uh, to others. But you can see that there's a lot in here that we spend our money on. Or, let, let's look at this. This, is, this, is, this was from kind of narrowing in on some of the what, what would be considered expendable income. And says for millennials, and then this is just the average consumer of all ages, every month the average between 18 and 34 is $80 spent on coffee and food on the go. $80 a month. Now I know there's many people that would say, look, I, I can't afford to be generous with my money. And we think that that's true. But it's because we're not tallying up every single thing and going, you know what, if I think about it, I probably do, you know, every time I go to Starbucks, that's $15 for one cup of coffee. Every time I... <laughs> go to McDonald's and, you know, get the double down, double box, whatever, you know, <laughs> then that, that costs some money. Um, and $67 for all ages is the average. Or you go to this, millennial going out, $103. Average consumer, $122. I guess they just have a little bit more money than the millennials, but, or they just have fancier tastes. There's a bottle of wine and a movie ticket, so... Um, Again, that's $183, though, if you put those together, of income that we just kind of, the point of this is just sort of frivolously spend, in the sense of it's not strategic spending. You're not saying, this is for my house, this is for this, that easily we categorize, and it's just gone. How about this? This is Colorado. $28 billion in consumer spending annually in the outdoor recreation. And I know in this room, that's at least you know, probably 14 billion. So 
I mean, Coloradans, we love our gear and our stuff and our hiking shoes and our bikes and our climbing gear and our state passes and national park passes and our epic passes and every sort of, I wish there was a pass pass. It was just, this is the pass for all passes, you know, and you just bought that and you're like, do you have the pass? Yes, I have the pass, the one pass to rule them all, you know, the, the precious, you know. I always have to work something about Lord of the Rings, no matter what it is, okay? But think about that. That's a lot of money spent on outdoor recreation. And we think, wow, it's hard to be generous. Why? Because I might have to give up my coffee. I might have to give up my movie. I might have to give up my wine. I might have to give up my gear. I might have to give up my pass. Or how about this? Back to the narcissism epidemic. This is interesting to me. The largest change in materialism. And this is not a Christian resource, just so you know. The largest change in materialism is the inexorable, inexorable rise in standards. Ten years ago, only, and this was written, I think, in the early 2000, or mid-2000s. Ten years ago, only the rich had granite countertops in their kitchens. Just like super white teeth, granite countertops are now necessary to show that you're not poor, even though no one cared about these things back in the early 90s. This is important because it says, you know what happens with materialism? You know what happens in materialism? We keep, and I talked about this last week, we keep moving things into the needs category. We keep moving things into the normal category. Of course I whiten my teeth. I don't have money to be generous. Of course I have granite countertops. I don't have money to be generous. Of course I've got a bedroom for each child. I don't have money to be generous. See, what happens with materialism is the needs and what's normal keeps rising, keeps going up. And then when we look at what we view is left over after all of our needs, we go, there's not very much. How could I be generous? Stores like Crate and Barrel, Williams and Sonoma, Pottery Barn have raised the bar on home furnishing standards for the aspirational middle class. It's not okay to have plain old cookware or appliances anymore. It should be professional quality. In 2002 dollars, the average kitchen in 1955 cost $9,000. The average kitchen now costs over $57,000. Even without a Viking range or high-end granite countertops, patio furniture should be teak and have perfectly coordinated cushions. So why is generosity difficult? It's difficult because if we give away our money, we view it as a trade-off. If I give away this, then I can't have this. If I give away this to others, then how am I able to have these things, which often the problem is we also view as our needs and as normal, just living in America expenses. This is why it's difficult to be generous. Sometimes it's the intangible things that we view as the trade-off, the comfort that we experience spending our money on, or even the status that we spend money on. How could I, if I give away my money, I might be thought of as having less than I have. I have to be able to drive this kind of car, have this kind of house, have this kind of furniture, have this kind of clothes, whatever it might be, to, so that I fit in in a certain status level. Or maybe it's the acceptance from others, or even our own worth, even our own sense of value. It's hard to be generous if we view that we are trading away our own worth. I spend money so that I know that I feel good and that I am good in some way. So let me, let me just say this. Here's why it's difficult. Being generous is difficult not because you don't or we don't like generosity. Being generous is not difficult because we go, generosity? Ha! I hate that. That's not why it's difficult. 
It's difficult because there's other things that we love and want. It's not difficult because we hate being generous and giving to others and helping support things that are good. It's not because we hate that. It's because there's a trade-off of things that we view that we have as needs, as wants, that have become very important to us. So what, what could make us give generously? If, this, if these factors are at work in us, which they are, and they're powerful in us and hard to give up, and it's hard to trade off things, what can make us generous? And here's what's really important. You cannot make progress in becoming a more generous person or uh, having a, a spirit that uh, overcomes kind of the, the forces of materialism. You cannot be generous. You're not able to make progress unless you're ready to admit this fact, that alone you won't do it. By ourselves, our natural state will not be to be generous. Our hearts need pressure. Our hearts need some sort of pressure moving us towards generosity. This is why there's professional kind of donor management people, the professional fundraisers that work for organizations. If people just naturally would be generous, if no one ever needed to kind of put any sort of pressure on the heart, then organizations and foundations wouldn't have professional fundraiser people that are doing things, right? They, they wouldn't have that. We wouldn't need, we just kind of, you know, there's a Thanksgiving and then Black Friday and then there's Giving Tuesday or we just had in Colorado, Colorado Gives Day, which there's these special days that are even marked out on the calendar to say, hey, here's the day to be generous. And it's special kind of hooks given to people to be able to say, hey, now's the time to be generous. Or matching, you know, Facebook will match for nonprofits on Giving Tuesday or other times. All of that stuff is to say naturally by yourself, you won't just be generous. You need some sort of pressure on the heart to move you, to move us to become generous. Alone, we, we won't do it. Now, here's the common strategy that's often used on our hearts. The common strategy on our hearts that puts pressure on the heart is often guilt. That's the common strategy that is often used. And what Paul says is he doesn't want to come and receive their gift as an extortion. And he's talking about guilt there. And we talked about that last week too. He says, I'm, I'm not trying to guilt you into doing this. I'm not trying to extort you is the word he said that we looked at today. I'm not trying to extort you into doing this. But, but that is the common strategy. The common strategy to put pressure on our hearts is guilt. It says you are here spending money on this, but you need to be generous. And so here's, here's what makes up the difference. Feel bad. Here's what makes up the difference. Feel bad about what you are doing, and then you will give generously. So sometimes others put that pressure on us. I remember as a kid growing up, I don't really think, I don't really watch a normal TV anymore, so I don't know if they still do this, but I remember growing up as a kid, you would watch right in the middle of Saturday morning cartoons, and then there would be, you know, they would show images from Africa and India and kind of different places in the world, and the kids that they would say, hey, these kids are starving, and you need to give money to this. All right, some of you remember, remember those things, or I don't know if this is, happens anymore, but um, parents used to tell their kids, you know, a lot, you probably heard this, of, hey, there's starving children in Africa, so you need to eat that food, you know, or there's starving kids, in other, so how dare you not eat your broccoli, you know, there'd be starving kids that would want that food. 
Uh, I watched the movie Crazy Rich Asians, uh, and it's in uh, Singapore, which is a really wealthy country, and they said, they're starving kids in America if you don't eat that food, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of, kind of funny. Uh, but that, that's a common strategy that is often used, is put guilt, put pressure with guilt, say, feel bad, that will make you generous. And maybe it's not from others, maybe it's just your own self. Maybe just your own self, you go, okay, I have so much, how could I not give? And you try to use guilt on your own heart to put pressure on your heart to give. Or maybe it's just in a moment that something happens, maybe a sermon or something else, and you kind of feel like you uh, got caught. You feel like, oh, no, I've, I've been caught. And in that moment, then you give because you feel guilty. And guilt is often the pressure, or Paul's words, extortion is often the pressure that is put on us to give. And here's the thing. It works. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. It works for a moment. It works for a moment. But here's what it does. It makes you give. It doesn't make you become a generous person. It makes you give, maybe even give generously in a moment, but that's not the same thing as that it makes you a generous person. That is what guilt does. But over time, you might actually become more cynical. You might actually become hardened to any sort of appeals. That's why it's even sort of a joke now to say, oh, there's starving kids and another, like, I mean, that, that has become so deadened on us because guilt can work in a moment to make you give generously, but it cannot make you a generous person. Those things are very different. So we need something better than that. We need something better than just guilt to move and put pressure on our hearts. This is why Paul says he wants us to give joyfully, to be cheerful givers. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. He says, I do not want to extort something from you, but God loves a cheerful giver. That joy and cheer is the only motive that will actually consistently move us to give. That's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for us. He doesn't want, look, God does not want you. God doesn't want you to just feel this, oh, I have to give. And God goes, yep, there we go. Got it. Got my money. That's not what God wants. God wants your heart to be filled with joy in all things in life and connected to giving. God wants your heart to delight in and rejoice in saying, I want to give. That, God wants that for you, to have a heart so filled with joy and cheer that you want to be generous, not to look at, you know, what you're giving and go, oh, you know, not that. He wants your heart to just be free and joyful. That Look, God loves a cheerful giver, Paul says. And it's very important that that is what God desires. I honestly think it's hard for us to even have a category of that. It's hard for us oftentimes to even think what would that look like which is why it's so hard for us to actually be generous people and to give, is because we only think of it in terms of duty, extortion, guilt, but not in what would happen if I was actually a generous, cheerful, joyful giver? What would that even look like? I want to show you a video that, um, this is an older video, it kind of made the rounds, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now, but, but it, it's the, the only thing I've ever seen that really even captures what joyful giving looks like. So this is from a another 
church. And it can be kind of humorous, but it really does capture what joyful generosity looks like. So let me show you this. That's the best part. That's, and that lady didn't even really like flinge that much. She's like, I, I know it's coming, you know? But I mean, we don't really even have a category for that, right? Like that guy obviously is the most exuberant of everybody there. But, but everybody, like if I said, hey, we're going to give offering now, everybody stand, everybody would leave. You would be like, what are you doing? But look at that. That is what joyful, cheerful generosity looks. I mean, there's people that are saying, man, I, God loves a cheerful giver. I want to give. I want to be generous. I mean, that is liberating, right? What if our hearts were like that? There would be no hold on our hearts of materialism. There would be no hold on our hearts of, no, these are needs. We would say, I want to give. That's the spirit that Paul is talking about, that God says he loves to see. I don't want to extort you. I don't want you to feel guilt in the give. Those people aren't walking up going, fine, fine. They're dancing. Their, their eyes, I mean, he's, he's dancing. I mean, that's like Michael Jackson dancing. I mean, he's got it, right? I mean, that is what God says. Ah, yes, that's what I, that's what I want your heart to feel. Not guilt, not begrudging, not duty, not okay, but joy and cheer, God says. This is what Paul says he wants us to experience. What makes us give generously is if we love it, if our hearts are cheerful and joyful. But how do we, how do we actually become not just people that give generously, but what makes us become joyfully generous? What moves us from people that maybe give generously in a moment to becoming a joyfully generous person? Guilt can put pressure on your heart to give. But what pressure do you need on your heart to actually become generous? What pressure on our hearts do we need to actually become a different kind of person? Now, this is important because here's what Paul says that, that we looked at. Paul says that each person should give. He says each person should give. Each person should give like this. That everybody that says, I'm a Christian, has a responsibility, Paul says, to give. Each person should give. And, and sometimes people say, yes, 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 but, he says, each person should give what you have decided in your heart to give. So don't tell me how much I should give. Each person should give how much I've decided in my heart to give. And that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. But Paul has already told us what our heart needs as guardrails to guide us. You see, what God wants for you is to look in your heart and say, I, this is what I've decided to give. But Paul doesn't just put that as one sentence and say, decide what you want to and that's what you should give. He tells us with pressure on our hearts to say, here's what joyful generosity looks like. Here's what we looked at last week. Here's the things. These are just quotes from Paul. 
that should guide our heart. He says, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So look at your heart and decide how much to give. But here is the guardrails that it should be led by. Overflowing in a wealth of generosity beyond their ability. They begged us earnestly to give. They excelled in giving. He says, I'm testing the genuineness of their love. He says there was an eager desire for them to give. All of those things are the heart that Paul is talking about when he says, look at your heart and decide how much to give. But these are the the rails, the guardrails that he gives us to help us know that our heart isn't being sucked into the forces of materialism. What makes us joyfully generous, we each should give. We should decide in our own hearts what we should give. But Paul wants it to be moved by a heart that has a pressure to give in that way. So what's the pressure that we need? What's the pressure we need on our hearts if we're going to give and become joyfully generous? It's not guilt. It isn't guilt, so what is it? Well, here's what it is. Paul says, it's not that you should feel bad and then give, but rather you should feel good and then give. It's not to see what you don't have or what they don't have and to go, oh man, they don't have these things, so I should give. Man, people have so much, you know, people have so much less than I have, so I should. It's not to use guilt and feel bad and see what people don't have that moves your giving. It should be to see all that you do have, all that God has done for you. Look look what he says. This is at the very end of 2 Corinthians. He ends kind of his whole section on giving saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This whole section that he's talking about giving, and he ends with, he concludes with saying, look what God has given. It's this indescribable gift. And and the gift he's referring to is what we talked about last week, where he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You see, this is what he's saying you have. He says, don't feel bad, feel good. Don't look at what other people don't have to motivate you to give. Look at all that you do have. Look what God has given you. Look at everything Jesus left and gave up to make you rich. And this is not talking about financial prosperity in your life. It's talking about the riches that God has given to us in Jesus. It's talking about who he is to us that we now have. It's saying Jesus gave up everything to give you the riches of knowing and being in relationship with him. Now, here's what this means. Christmas, the story of Christmas, which is that verse right there, God coming into this earth, giving up everything. That's what we celebrate with Christmas, is God coming into the earth, giving up everything as a baby to do something, to make his people rich. And the story, here's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is not about giving. Christmas is about getting, if you understand it rightly. Christmas is not about us giving. Christmas is about that we have received the most beautiful gift that we could ever receive. See, Christmas is about the gospel. Christmas is about the fact not that we are supposed to give and be generous, and Christmas is about that we have already received something, that we have been given the riches of Jesus. That is what Christmas is about. And, and look, here, here's, the, here's the truth. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's what Paul is trying to put pressure on the heart with, not with guilt, but to say, look who Jesus is. Here's what he's trying to do. 
He's trying for us to see, look at the riches you have in Jesus. Because our giving will always be a reflection of our understanding of what we have got. Our giving to others will always be a reflection of our grasp of what we have received from Jesus. That is what it will always flow from, which means we don't need just commands to give, which is what Paul is saying. Give, give. Paul is saying, I don't want to do that. Paul says, what I want is for your heart to be filled with joy. And he says, the where that comes from is when you see the indescribable gift that you've been given from Jesus. Our generosity will always flow from our grasp of the gift of Jesus, the indescribable gift. Here's how Isaac Watts, one of the great hymn writers, says this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, any of this stuff over here, my richest gain, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, this is looking at what Jesus has done and saying, how could I not give? I've been given everything. You see, in Jesus, we have the riches. We have the indescribable gift. We fear a trade-off. If I give this, I miss out on this. But Paul is trying to say, don't give from a place of scarcity. Don't give from a place of saying what I don't have and what I'll miss out on. Give from a place of knowing what you've been given. Give from a place of the riches that you already have. Look, what, do you ha- what does it mean, he says, that you've become rich? It means that you have everything that he has provided. You have forgiveness. You have a new identity. You have community of people. You have comfort in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of suffering. You have hope in the middle of death. You have peace in the middle of turmoil. You have so much in Jesus, he says. Look at that. Those are the riches that you've been given. And and how has Jesus given all that to us? He gave it to us not begrudging. He gave it beyond his ability. He gave it in excess. He gave it eagerly. He begged to give it. He gave it passionately. He gave it graciously. He gave it free. He gave it cheerfully and joyfully to us to bring us into his family. See, when that begins to work on our heart, then we see giving and generosity not as a call to sacrifice. We see it as a call to dance and to be joyful in what God has given to us. If you're already full with riches from Jesus, then the money's just a tool. Not to get what you want, but to show how good he's been to you. And then you're free from the powers of materialism. You're free from the powers of greed that rule our world. So here's what this means. Use that on your heart. Use that on your heart. When you think about generosity, when you think about giving, don't try to guilt yourself into giving. Focus your mind, focus your heart on the riches that you have in Jesus. And let that begin to change us. And if we each give from that heart, from that place, we become a community that is joyfully generous. When we take communion, what we remember is that Jesus' body was broken, 
his blood was shed, that he entered this world giving up everything to give us everything. He didn't just die and sacrifice and, and bleed. I mean, that's not, he did that for something. He did that to forgive us of our sins, to give us his value and worth and righteousness, to bring us into a family, to bring us to himself. So when we take communion and when we sing, we remember his generosity to us. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of Jesus to us, for your joyful generosity to us. I thank you for the fact that you were passionately, eagerly desirous of making us rich in you and that we have everything in you. I pray that you would move in our hearts, God, to see this gift and to become a joyfully generous people that reflects your generosity to us. In your name, Jesus, I pray.